Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the question, what is metaphysics? A lot of times on this program, we use the word metaphysics, and sometimes people don't know quite exactly what we're talking about when we talk about metaphysics. So it's important to kind of go into the terminology so that everyone understands the concepts that are being talked about. The first thing we're going to do, though, is we're going to talk about physics. Metaphysics is above physics, so it's good to get a baseline. What is physics? We pulled up the Wikipedia physics page, and we got all sorts of pictures of it looks like lightning and, and spinning toys, and we got an atom bomb. We think about, when we think about physics, we think about Einstein, we think about his formulas. E equals mc squared. And in fact, uh, physics, models, math, these are all re very related concepts. I remember in college and in high school physics classes, going through story problems. It, that, that's all we did in, in physics class is go through story problems. Oh, what's the speed of this object? It's going down this ramp. We got this coefficient of friction. What's its speed at this point in, in its uh, fall or in its slide? And uh, how about... Um, balancing out airplanes, trying to figure out the center of mass of an airplane. I remember footage that came out of Iraq of a C-16 is in mid-air where the cargo shifted within the hull of the airplane. And that shifting cargo put that airplane off balance and you see it spin and crash into the ground. Four individuals died in that C-16 crash. This physics, it's very important to understand how uh, matter relates to the natural world. Let's read what this says here. Physics is the natural science that studies matter, its motion, and its behavior through space and time, and that studies the related entities of energy and force. So physics is the study of the world around us, how the world operates. Not everything that we experience is related to physics, though. Sometimes, maybe, maybe you're on the sidewalk, and you're walking down the sidewalk, and there's a very large lady in front of you, and you say, out of the way, land whale. And she turns around and she gets angry at you. A surprise, surprise. She's very angry at you. This is not physics going on here. This is not uh, the, the interaction of molecules and, and how they operate. Instead, this is a different branch of science altogether. The, the science of psychology or sociology and people acting in mass is the science of economics. The study of behavioral things, the study of behavioral issues, how people respond to the events around them. And this is not to be confused with physics. Uh, maybe, maybe if we are just dead, inert creatures and we are just the product of our environment, let's say atheism is true and we're just input-output robots. In that sense, yeah, maybe you could say that all of our actions are just the result of inputs uh, working on chemicals in our brain with, with predetermined outputs, then everything is physics. But normally when we think about a society, a free will, free choice, interaction, human interaction, we, we don't assign that under the realm of physics. Instead, it's uh, human behavior, which works a lot more randomly than physics does. Everything's not input-output. I remember reading the book. It's uh, 48 Laws of Power. It's by Robert Greene. And uh, this, this book is banned in prison. You can't get it in prison because all the rules are about how to manipulate and control people. And one thing that I really noticed very acutely within this book is 
is all sorts of these rules, they just contradict each other. They they say one thing. It's, it's almost like he went through history and he got a bunch of examples of individuals who succeeded in various times and various circumstances. And then he wrote a rule for each of these circumstances, although a lot of those rules, they contradict when put in the same book. I'll give you an example. One example is uh, don't outshine everyone else because you cause jealousy and then they'll target you and destroy you. But then another rule is about courting attention, that you're always supposed to court attention. There, there's examples in the book of individuals who are lenient. Maybe an uh, incoming invader, he shows mercy to a local king. And sometimes these kings, like for example, in, in the case of Alexander and his uh, conquest of India, he, he recruited one of these kings to, to join his campaigns. And he said, you, you fought the bravest, so we're going to give you an army under my army. And uh, he was a brave and loyal subject. But in other cases, those individuals hold resentment and then start rebellions. And so it, it's, not a, it's not a hard and fast rule how humans behave, how they interact with each other, what, what kind of action, reaction you're going to get from giving the same inputs to individuals. Some countries, you bomb them. Hey, we bombed Japan. We dropped two nukes on them. Uh, they get very pacified. They go from very warlike, they, suicidally warlike, into extremely passive. But if you bomb someone like the U.S., everyone becomes very warlike. It's not entirely easy to predict individual behavior. A lot of times we could predict group behavior in mass. It's a lot easier than individual behavior. But individual behavior is all over the map. So this is psychology. Not every single human being is the same. We're not just input-output robots where the same inputs are going to work the same way on individuals. There are trends. Uh, you call a lady a land whale and she's going to get mad at you. Um, nine times out of ten, uh, maybe that uh, nine times is a little low. Maybe it's like 9.999999 times. Uh, then she will get mad at you. It's 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 almost assured, but not always. Not maybe they'll laugh. You know, sometimes women take uh, insults as uh, flirting. I don't know. I don't know. They take it in jest. But anyways, it's important to distinguish between the two: human interaction, human thoughts, behaviors, motivation, our goals, desires, dreams. This is not physics. We're talking about here. We are talking about psychology we're talking about sociology and we're talking about economics those those branches of science they're they're a little bit less hard and fast than the laws of physics whereas the physics those models are fairly good at predicting uh things based on inputs the laws of psychology are not as defined because you're dealing with the human element which has a very strong element of randomness in it so back to physics real quick. Physics has all sorts of different models that sometimes they conflict. There are different ways of explaining the natural phenomena around us. Sometimes you might encounter classical physics or maybe theories of relativity. You might have quantum physics that you're dealing with. There's these different models to explain the phenomenon that we see in the natural world. Let's move on to metaphysics. Metaphysics is the physics of the meta world. It's the physics of the world that we can't see. It's how how this uh, spiritual realm operates and functions. Let's read the Wikipedia definition of metaphysics. 
Metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that examines the fundamental nature of reality, including the relationship between mind and matter, between substance and attribute, and between potentiality and actuality. When we're thinking about metaphysics, we're figuring out physics for the meta world, a world beyond our perception and our senses. We're, we're trying to figure out the fundamental nature of reality. And like physics, people tend to draw out equations. This is how they try to understand, piece together the metaphysical world. Myself and Will Duffy, we went down to the Randomness Conference. Uh, Thomas J. Ord was one of the hosts of the Randomness Conference. A bunch of open theists there. A lot of open theists, almost open theists dominated. I think uh, Ord got into the invite list and invited all his buddies and crowded out maybe some Calvinists or something like that. There were some Calvinists there too. There was uh, Ben Arbor was there. He's a He's a, I guess, famous, quote unquote, anti-open theist. He was there. But the whole conference, <laughs> Will Duffy and I are sitting in all these different lectures, listening to all these people talk about metaphysics. Uh, we finally we finally got to one lecture where it's about uh, Exodus 32. I think it was about Exodus 32. And Will Duffy comes up to the guy afterwards and he says, wow, I'm glad that uh, we finally was found someone who takes uh, Exodus literally. And he looked at Will Duffy and said, no, I don't take it literally. I take it seriously. <laughs> he takes it seriously. Yeah. So the concepts are useful to his metaphysics, uh, but the actual events didn't actually happen. They're, they're, just, they're just useful stories to inform your metaphysics. And these, these are open theists. So open theists have metaphysics as well. But let me pull up this picture real quick of this uh, individual, this lecturer we went to, and uh, I, I thought it was real funny, so I snapped a quick picture. And here he is, and he's talking about who God is, how God operates, and he pulls up this slide, and what do we see is just a big, long list of formulas. You, I don't know if you could see it very well. We'll try to zoom in a little bit here. But uh, divine action and natural law is the name of the slide. And you got this big long formula with all these different variables. Uh, this plus this minus this. And this has th these type of variables. Congratulations. You did it. You have discovered God. Uh, your metaphysics uh, shows the formula for what God is. So this is what metaphysics is. It's a formula for describing God. And you see this Throughout Christians, uh, th throughout Christianity, people use formulas for God in place of God, and they do it without realizing. So turning to John 6, we'll use this as our first example of uh, what Calvinists usually, they usually read metaphysics throughout the Bible. And so they come across a passage, they're, they're reading John, they're not reading John, they're, they're looking for proof text. Uh, so they find their proof text, they go to John 6, and it says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So they're like, hold up, hold the show. Let's get our whiteboard and we'll start drawing out a diagram. Um, this happens, then this, which leads to this. And it means this necessarily. And so what they're looking for is a formula about how the metaphysical world works. These are your inputs and these are your outputs. This, this, and this, and these combinations in this way, leads to this output. They are viewing John 6. They think that Jesus in John 6 is talking, talking metaphysics. He's, he's giving you a formula and all you have to do is input the right variables and then out pops the, the re end result. And the end result that the Calvinists want to get from John 6 is a list of saved individuals. How does someone get to that saved status? Oh, first they got to be called or drawn and called and 
and then they're, they're eternally kept and then they're raised up and uh, this is this is not the idea there's there's nowhere in the bible that you're going to get a sense that they're actually talking metaphysics and we know this is true we know this is true especially in john 6 because this john 6 verse is not alone it's not standalone john 6:39 this is the will of the father who sent me that all he has given me i should lose nothing but should raise it up the last day. So what's going on here? Is it metaphysics? Well, first the Father sends, it's his will, and he sends those individuals, individuals he's chosen, and then all of them who are given, uh, now they're sealed, and there's there's no way that they can't be sealed, and then they get this uh, special salvation. You draw out your blackboard, you got your inputs, and so that leads to your output. Is that what's going on here? Well, we learn later that's absolutely not what's going on here. John 17, 12 is a call back to this very reference in John 6. He says this, this is Jesus talking. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave to me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So not only not only does Jesus, he's, he's, um, he's, he's achieved something. He's, he's bragging about an achievement. He's saying, I accomplished this goal. I was given a tasking, a tasking which could have been failed, and I actually achieved that tasking. It's not metaphysics, it's a tasking. God says, here's the people I'm sending to you. Uh, make sure that they don't fall away from the faith. And Jesus is saying, I accomplished this tasking, which also tells us that John 6 is not about you and me. Uh, it's about Jesus' own ministry in his own lifetime. It was about very specific events within history that were being described in that very chapter and it's not about all time and eternity ever so that whole metaphysics board that they're trying to write out this eternal plan of if how people are regenerated and the steps that it takes to regenerate it's not even applicable to you and i because it's just about a tasking that was given to jesus in his lifetime which is completed then in john 17 12. He says, I have kept them and none of them has been lost except, so there's an exception. There's an exception to the rule. What is the rule that Jesus keeps them all? But there's an exception. So there's there's someone who would fit that rule, uh, but now there's an exception. So he loses one and it says, except the son of perdition, that scripture might be fulfilled. And so there's a legitimate excuse why the whole thing wasn't fulfilled and that there was an individual who was accepted from this general rule. So this metaphysics formula is false. There are people who this doesn't apply to. There are exceptions to this rule. And Jesus did lose one by his own admission. There is an exception. We hear Calvinists like Matt Slick talking metaphysics as well. Well, God blinds and God makes sure people doesn't hear. He closes their hearts and minds. And it's a metaphysical hardening. It's God saying, oh, now this person's shut off. This person has no chance at redemption. But we learn also in John as well that this is not the case. This, this is a, a willful, willful misreading of these events, these scriptures. And they need to be taken uh, more practically as a general figure of speech. When I go preach on a college camp, not saying that I did that anytime soon, uh, but if I'm preaching in a college campus, I am shutting off their hearts. I am shutting off their eyes. They're becoming hardened through me. I'm doing that to them. Let's read John 12 and see what it says. 
But although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So they did not believe, all right, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Okay, so their non-belief is fulfilling, and you know, that's paralleling, fulfilling Isaiah. It says, therefore, they could not believe. They could not believe. Uh, so if you're a Calvinist, you got your whiteboard out and you write, cannot believe because God did. What did God do? They could not believe because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And so, okay, so God blinded them. And so now they can't see. What? What? Wait, wait a minute. Is this metaphysics? What's this verse 42 here? Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. So the same group who's blinded and who's hardened, nevertheless, what does nevertheless mean? Do, do a word search on nevertheless. It means uh, in spite of the facts that were previously presented, many of the rulers believed. In spite of the hardening, it, these rulers are believing. So what, what it tells me is that this is more of a figure of speech, that the, the mass of people, they just reject God. And uh, you could say God's hardening their hearts and he's closing their minds because of the way in which they don't want to receive the message. So is it maybe the same way that the kings of Israel made Israel sin? They didn't walk to people's houses and brainwash them with maybe like some sort of hypnotist type thing. That's not what they're doing to make Israel sin. The people are being made to sin by the kings through following their practical example, through psychology. And so, yeah, so maybe God is hardening hearts and blinding individuals just by the way the gospel is presented. That's their natural response, which could, in, in a normal, normal language, be attributed to God in the same way that the kings of Israel made Israel sin. This is normal language. This is allowed in language. We also have indication in that verse 42 that it's not an absolute. It's not metaphysics going on here. So notice the difference between metaphysics and psychology. Metaphysics and sociology. Sociology is, well, humans kind of respond like this generally, but not all of them do that. And uh, here's how you make people like you, you know, how to win friends and influence people is, is a book that everyone should probably read. I don't know, I've probably read like half of it. Not that I have any friends, but I don't know how well that worked for me, that book. But, you know, you can make people like you a lot better based on your behavior, based on changing things, how you approach people. But it's not a hard and fast rule. Their individuals are unique with the different temperaments, different desires, thoughts, ideas, dreams, goals in life. And so not everyone's going to respond in the same way. So notice these two different approaches to these different passages, John 6, John 12, John 17. Are we talking about metaphysics? Are we, or are we building formulas? Are we at a whiteboard and we're drawing out uh, what inputs have to happen to get what outputs. Or are we just talking about general human behavior using generalities, using normal uh, <laughs> figures of speeches, uh, hyperbole, generalizations? What, which one's going on? And they're not equal. They're not equal concepts. So going back to this presenter, here he lists out this big formula. That is who God is. So that reminds me of physics formulas. Uh, you know, you mass and energy and how those relate to each other. The formula for gravity equals mc squared. The whole universe 
in the world of physics works based on models and formulas. And so God also fits into these models and formulas. God, God is just like physics in this, this mindset that God what depending on the inputs if you give him the exact same inputs in the exact same scenario he'll give you the exact same output because god is just an input output robot which maximizes goodness this is the value that was championed even by open theists and guess what open theists are adopting a platonic value set what makes god the best god open theists adopting platonic values you, you see this especially i was talking to john sanders one day and uh, he had that book the openness of god and he had individuals write various chapters and i, I was wondering why terence fretheim didn't write the biblical chapter and he said well i contacted fretheim and he wasn't available i said well did you did you try walter bergerman he said, oh, no, I wouldn't uh, consider Walter Brueggemann to write that chapter for open theists because he doesn't give primacy. Uh, to, uh, he didn't, John Sanders didn't use that, those words, but he doesn't give primacy to God's love. He doesn't. He, he actually champions the text as it was what John Sanders reply basically was that he wouldn't consider Walter Brueggemann because Walter Brueggemann doesn't let those philosophical notions color the output of what he's writing huh open theist metaphysics now i'm not a big believer in open theist metaphysics i'm not a big believer in metaphysics i think god is not a formula god is not an input output robot god is a person and a person can take situations and react in different ways react unpredictably even uh, react in ways that we might not consider just you know how often do uh, you disagree with with a way a judge rules you know there multiple people are going to agree and disagree with the same judge we all have different subjective standards and subjectivity allows people to be different than each other and to just pretend that the world operates and functions based on how whatever you think is best not only is that arrogant but that uh, it neglects the reality of the situation if god is a personal being he should be able to act in personal ways and not based on this formula where he's just an input output robot let's turn let's turn real quick to one of the open theists favorite texts first samuel 15 and we'll talk about what's going on here and why open theists don't typically like first samuel 15. So in 1 Samuel 15, you got Saul, and he is uh, attacking the Amalekites. The Amalekites. And this is important because King David attacks the same people group later. Uh, he, he conquers them, King David does, and then he takes all the spoils for himself, which is interesting because Saul does that here. And this is the reason that God takes the kingdom away from him. The same thing, David, do you, do you remember that time where king david's criticized for spoiling the amalekites for taking their stuff and and not burning it all not killing all the people to to a man you remember no it didn't happen he was not condemned for these same acts that saul is being condemned for saul is being condemned for something almost it almost seems a little unfair in the saul david dichotomy how the two stack up against each other they do the same action but the results of god god's actions towards them are quite on a different level. Let's see what happens with Saul. 
Verse 23, this is uh, Samuel talking. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24, this is Saul. Saul says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship Yahweh. He's saying, I repent. I turn from my sins. I want to worship Yahweh. I'm sorry for doing this. Saul, this this seems to me, this reads to me like a genuine repentance. But uh, a lot of people, especially open theists, they do not want to see this as a genuine repentance in Saul. They want to attribute, maybe maybe it's a false repentance. Maybe he's not really serious and his actions suggest that he doesn't really believe. What, what does Jesus say in the New Testament? If someone uh, does something to you seven times, 70 times, they, they hurt you a million times and apologize a million times, you uh, forgive them a million times. Huh. huh. And Samuel says this to Saul. I will not return with you. <laughs> and Saul replies back in the next verse, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship Yahweh your God. So he seems really repentant, but the kingdom is still taken from him in this way that wasn't taken of David. King David did the same thing, and King David wasn't repentant. He was never even called out on doing this action. It's a double standard is what we're reading here. And here's part of the reason I like Walter Brueggemann is because he deals with these issues directly. He doesn't try to dismiss the text, mitigate the text. He talks about what's happening in the, in the text, and he does not make excuses for it. Here's Walter Brueggemann. In fact, Saul is treated unfairly by Yahweh, and he is assigned a role in the memory of Israel that shows him to be in a position where he can only lose. Saul will lose partially because David is bold, lucky, attractive, and destined. Saul will lose because forces conspire against him. Israel, moreover, does not hesitate to assign those conspiring forces exactly to Yahweh. Thus, Yahweh will deceive in order to advance David. Yahweh will counsel Samuel to listen to the people and crush Saul for the same action. Yahweh will eliminate Saul for taking Amalekite's spoil, but will disregard David's like action. Yahweh will forgive David, but refuse Saul's confession. Yahweh will be arbitrarily in David's favor and need to justify it to none, certainly not to Saul and not to Saul's readers. You bring this up to Christians, even open theists, and they'll come back and they'll say something like, well, God shows partiality to no one. And they'll quote the New Testament. They'll quote a verse from the New Testament. What they're doing is they're taking this verse from the New Testament and they think it's a formula and they think that it uh, uh, prescribes some sort of hard and fast limitation on God such that if God ever acts towards any individuals in a different way that we could see, then we have to reinterpret the things that happened in light of that metaphysical absolute, which is metaphysically a part of God's character, which cannot be bent, which cannot be violated or or even bumped up against. Yeah, there, there's, there's no leeway. Uh, there's no subjectivity. It's a hard and fast rule that cannot be violated. It's metaphysics. They think God operates on, on a course of metaphysics. So you put certain inputs into God, certain inputs come out. He has certain restrictions on things he can do, and he has to operate within those set parameters or else, or else what? Then he violates those standards. And so a lot of Christians will come to the text and overwhelmingly try to requalify the events. God floods the world. Oh, that was a loving thing to do. 
I, I guess, I guess that's a loving thing to do. You say, well, maybe it's, it's not quite loving to drown people in a big wide flood. And they'll come back with a verse that says, oh, God is love. So what they're doing is they're prioritizing metaphysics. They got a formula. God must meet this formula. There's no leeway. There's no slippage. Slippage is a word that Walter Bergman uses in his theology of the Old Testament. And let's turn back to Walter Bergman, our good friend. And here he is, and he's talking about the character of Yahweh within the Bible. This is a very, very important section. It doesn't, it bucks against our our assumptions of who God is and who God must be. It bumps up against uh, ideas of metaphysics, that God has to follow these formulas. We got our buddy looking at his PowerPoint, and he's got this formula for God. Guess what? This formula doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. It, it's incongruent with the Bible. And uh, here's Walter Bergerman. The tension, oddness, incongruity, contradiction, and lack of settlement are to be understood not in terms of literature or history, but as a central data of the character of Yahweh. This suggests that Yahweh, as evidenced in and by Israel, has available as a character a range of inclination, a repertoire of possible responses, a conundrum of loyalties, commitments, and expectations that are being endlessly educated while certain tendencies, propensities, and inclinations have some stability being more or less constant. Israel and Israel's rhetoricians never know beforehand what will eventuate in the life of Yahweh. Thus, it is not known whether the judge will sentence or pardon, the warrior will fight for or against, the king will banish or invite to the table, the potter will work attentively or smash, the gardener will cultivate and protect or pluck up, the shepherd will lead and feed or judge between the sheep and the sheep, the doctor will heal or pronounce the patient terminally ill. Such a conclusion is not contextless. We do not say that these things concerning Yahweh as though every occasion of response were an arbitrary flip of the coin. No, of course not. Yahweh is deeply enmeshed in a tradition of textuality, is committed to what has been previously claimed, and is held accountable for the chance for life together between Yahweh and Israel. Thus, the offer of Yahweh is not sheer capriciousness. But even so, one may ask, does life with this God not entail anxiety? Even if there is a tendency in a certain reliable direction, there is always a chance of a response in another direction. For Yahweh has a vast repertoire of possible responses. Yes, the faith of Israel is not without anxiety. This, I should suggest, is the severe meaning of the second commandment. The one with whom Israel has to deal is not an image, a category, a genre, a concept, or a norm. Rather, this is a particular God with a name and a history, who is a free agent and an active character. Israel's faith is finally not trust in something that is transcendent in Yahweh, so as to escape what is contingent. But Israel's life with this God is endlessly dialogical, and it is therefore always open and always capable of newness. Israel is tempted to minimize the risk and curb the danger by boxing Yahweh into its formula. But each time it does so, Yahweh surprises. In times of judgment, when sovereign assertion of Yahweh is expected and warranted, we find pathos. In times of terrible need, when Yahweh's delicate generosity may seem appropriate, Yahweh is solemn and demanding. One does not know. Israel does not know. 
What Israel does know and counts on heavily is that the incomparable Yahweh of these several noun metaphors will always be in play. And Israel must always be in play with Yahweh for it is its very life. So this is why I like Walter Brueggemann's Systematic Theology of the Old Testament because it explores Yahweh as a person, Yahweh as a character. We're dealing not with metaphysics. We're dealing not with physics. We're dealing with psychology. We're dealing with the individual who has a range of possible reactions to any situation. It's just not input-output. There's there's slippage. There's slippage. You, you could criticize God, and God is criticized by his people throughout the Bible. There's criticisms with Moses in Genesis 18. There's criticisms with King Abimelech. Now the Psalms, the Psalms are filled with criticisms. God, why do you hide your face? Your righteous suffer day and night. There's give and take between people. There's people who ask God to operate in different ways, change his standards of righteousness, such as in Genesis 18, and God complies. God listens to their arguments, considers their arguments, and sometimes changes his course of action based on these interactions. God is not an input-output robot. A lot of times in the Bible, sometimes God repents for his own name's sake based on nothing the people do. It's not input-output. It's relational. It's a God who's able to act and act independently outside of your formulas, outside of your expectations, a personal being, not metaphysics. So this is what I mean when I talk about metaphysics. When people want to impose metaphysics on God, they say, oh, God can't do that because, oh, look at my verse over here. You have this statement. God is love, and that doesn't fit that meaning. So there's this metaphysical absolute, which God must meet. And if he doesn't meet that, then this verse is somehow violated because that's metaphysics. That, that verse they're taking as metaphysics rather than something else, rather than as a generality, rather than as hyperbole. Or maybe maybe sometimes when people are saying God is righteous, they're, they're setting a standard for God to act towards or act as. Genesis 18.25, this is Abraham talking to Yahweh about the possible destruction of Sodom, and he prefaces it with this, far be it from you to do such a thing as this. This is the thing that God was already planning to do. And uh, Abraham saying to them, far be it from you to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. This is an argument. This is a technique in order to get God to comply with the advice. He, he's framing. He's framing the conversation. If you don't follow this standard, you're not going to be righteous. He's saying, don't do this, this thing you're planning to do, or else it will degrade you in this way. So he's saying, you are righteous, Therefore, you're not going to do this expecting that God is going to follow through. If you're asking your friend for money, you might preface it. You might say, oh, I know you're a generous guy. Can I borrow some money? And then if he fails to live up to those expectations, it, it's, a, it's a psychology thing where, you know, now he's failing to live up to what you already set him out to be. And he is compelled to meet your standards that you have set for him because you framed the conversation. That might be what's going on in some of these verses. This is probably, this is my idea of what's happening in Genesis 18 is Abraham is framing the conversation to get Yahweh to act in a particular way. Metaphysicians don't like this idea. They don't like the idea that God's standard of righteousness is challenged and changed and modified. They think, oh, if it's modified, then the righteousness isn't a real thing. And, and uh, he would have been wicked if he killed all these people. And, and uh, you can't impose a new standard of righteousness. Or 
or change your idea of how to operate. And so these, these types of ideas, they have to be mitigated. They have to be argued away. They have to, they have to find some sort of way to say that this text is saying something different. So I'm not about that here. I'm not, I'm not about metaphysics. I don't think uh, God has to, is forced to, he's uh, operate in any particular way. God has volition. God has choice. God is not constrained by our formulas that we want to apply to God. God can do things. God is a living God. God is a dynamic God. God is not these metaphysical formulas. The metaphysics that we talk about, I don't buy them. I don't buy them as arguments. You got you got to prove to me, prove to me that your proof texts are actually talking metaphysics. That's debatable. That's a debatable point. This part of the recording is an addendum to our original recording. We're just going to re-emphasize what is metaphysics. Metaphysics is the study of the metaphysical realm, thinking that there are properties, that there are formulas, that there are attributes that are inviolable, cannot be changed, they're immutable. Let's say God is impeccable, meaning not only does he not sin, but he cannot sin by virtue of being God. When people say God is God, so he must be a certain way, that is metaphysics. That he must be that way. Not that he just chooses to be that way, that he must be that way. Those are metaphysics. When we're talking about omniscience especially, Non-open theist metaphysics states that God must have all true facts at the forefront of his mind from all eternity. Open theist metaphysics, when open theists engage in metaphysics, they state things such that God has all knowledge as soon as those facts come into existence. They're just instantly in his head. Uh, they are there by virtue of being God, by virtue of having this property called omniscience. It's not like our knowledge where we get ours through perception, where we could choose not to know something if we so choose. That's not the omniscience that metaphysics allows. It's a metaphysics that must be true due to this formula. In the book God's Absence and the Charismatic Presence, they even tried to explain God's nescience through metaphysics. When there's sin that abounds, God withdraws presence, as if there's a formula for God having nescience of certain events, such as in Sodom. So this is what I mean when I talk about metaphysics, the study of the nature and the properties of the metaphysical world. It's not volition, it's not choice, it's not normal social interaction, it's properties that must be so due to the fact that they belong to God. They belong to the divine world. They belong to the world above ours. That is what metaphysics is. Anyways, I think we've gone about long enough. So if you have any questions, comments, post that on uh, down there in the YouTube comments or if, uh, start a thread, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.